This is the audio book of the booklet, God and the Problem of Suffering, by Philip St. Romain. All rights reserved. This book is narrated by Philip St. Romain, published by Contemplative Ministries, Incorporated, through Lulu Press in 2015. EPUB and PDF versions of this work are available free of charge from lulu.com and shalomplace.com. Introduction Schoolyard shootings, devastating hurricanes, plane crashes, genocide, child abuse, cancer. Where is God when these and other tragic events happen? God gets blamed for many things. I recall when my wife, a sixth grade religion teacher at the time, had a discussion with her class about a famine in Ethiopia, and she asked the students what they thought about it. Several stated that the reason the Ethiopians were starving was because they probably were not Christians. Others stated that God was punishing them for something they did wrong. These comments might be excusable for children, but several said this is what their parents had told them. People in every walk of life struggle with the issue of God's involvement in suffering and evil. Consider, for example, this quote from Sidney Hook, a contributor to Free Inquiry, a journal of secular humanist ideas. I ask, how could an all-loving, and all-powerful God exists if he permits the innocent to be tortured and the wicked to prosper. If he is all-loving and cannot prevent it, he is not all-powerful. If he is able to prevent it but will not, he is not all-loving. What's the answer to this dilemma? Has Mr. Hook painted God into a corner? How we understand God's role in suffering and evil has a significant impact on our faith. How difficult for those sixth graders taught by my wife to feel compassion for the hungry if for some reason their plight is deserved. The dilemma presented by Sidney Hook in the quote just shared has significant implications for faith. Indeed, it seems that for many people today, it is a primary stumbling block. The reflections which follow are intended to help shed light on God's attitude and response to suffering. Ultimately, we are dealing with a mystery here, which is not to say that we cannot comprehend anything about it, but that the topic goes beyond the capacities of human reason and its manner of understanding things. Indeed, we must rely to some extent on divine revelation to help us comprehend God's attitude towards suffering and evil. After all, a critique of God's complicity in these matters implies some kind of concept of God, of which there are many among the world's religions. The response given herein will be from the perspective of Christian theology, which is based in large part on the revelation of God presented in the Judeo-Christian tradition. It will be a sketch on how to approach and respond to this topic 
rather than a scholarly thesis of which there are many. Acknowledgements. This work was initially published as a much shorter pamphlet in 1989 by Liguri Publications, whose editorial staff provided assistance in shaping its structure and expression. Critical feedback and evaluation for this present publication was provided by Anne Axman, Derek Cameron, Sister Jolene Geyer, Brother Carrie Ninemeyer, Teresa St. Romain, Todd St. Romain, Evangeline Truex, and Jerry Truex. Thank you all for helping to make this a better work. I also presented a webinar on this topic using the approach taken in this work in August 2015. Comments and interactions of participants have also been taken into consideration. Chapter 1 God and Human Suffering We begin by recognizing that there are different causes of pain and suffering in our human lives, each having different implications for how we might understand God's role. Five causes of suffering. Number one, moral evil, suffering caused by the misuse of human freedom, poor eating habits, smoking, and lack of exercise are examples of poor choices made by individuals. Heart attacks, cancers, and other problems are possible consequences. Guilt and shame resulting from lying and other immoral behaviors are also conditions that we bring on ourselves. No one is surprised when a smoker gets lung cancer or a liar has relationship difficulties. Individuals hurting others through violent actions is another example of this type of suffering. Child abuse is a sad but fairly common example, but so is gossip that damages another's reputation. The list could go on. Social injustice is also caused by the misuse of human freedom under the influence of social biases. Racism, sexism, and other forms of bias are common examples, as is persecuting people for their religious beliefs. Genocidal movements have claimed millions of lives during the past century. Number two, suffering caused by accidents. For example, a car wreck because of a tire that blows out is unplanned and not completely preventable. Neither is tripping and breaking one's arm and a wide variety of other mishaps and mistakes. Accidents are in a category of their own because they are unintended and unpredictable. They are often ascribed to bad luck or similar phrases, prompting different kinds of questions concerning God's role in the situation. Number three, natural evil. Suffering occasioned by nature is quite common. This can include tragedies brought on by weather, for example, tornadoes, floods, lightning, blizzards, and so forth, and geological phenomena like earthquakes and volcanoes. These natural causes are sometimes called acts of God by the insurance industry 
as there is no human being or social entity to assign blame to them. Biological factors like birth defects can also be assigned to this type of suffering as are unavoidable forms of mental illness. Number four, suffering caused by sickness. Even though one lives in a country where social injustice is minimal and one manages to avoid accidents, natural disasters, and poor choices, we all get sick at some time. This is unavoidable as our immune system is not invulnerable to every kind of virus or bacteria. Sickness, even the common cold, is painful, not to mention a stress on our caregivers. Number five, suffering rooted in the growth process derives from our creatureliness. As we grow older, it is natural that we stretch our physical and psycho-spiritual boundaries. From the reproductive and birthing process to teething and learning to walk to the adolescent's search for identity, to aging and death, there is pain accompanying growth. These pains cannot be prevented. They are part of life. Sometimes we find combinations of these causes of suffering, as when a hurricane makes landfall in a country that is poorly governed and unable to provide assistance to those in the path of the storm. To make matters worse, Looters might move in, further worsening the situation. Small children and the elderly will be most vulnerable to the stresses of inadequate food and medical care. A hurricane is a powerful destructive force to begin with, but all the more so where there are many poor. Let's look at moral evil. Now that we have examined the five common sources of human suffering, we can reflect more on the problem of moral evil. Keeping in mind the theological understanding of evil as the absence of good, let us consider the question, what would God have to do in order to prevent evil from happening? Since moral evil is the natural and logical outcome of the misuse of freedom, the way to prevent it would be for God to somehow prevent people from doing harmful acts to themselves and one another. For example, God would have to deter the child abuser from beating his child, or disallow the unjust laws imposed by a dictator from being implemented. Obviously, God does not do this. Why? Because to allow humans to make only good choices while preventing us from making and enacting bad ones would be no freedom at all. We would be more like robots if that were the case. But that is not how God has created us. Still, it seems that this explanation lets God off the hook completely. After all, God is the one who created us with freedom, and who sustains in existence those who create evil acts. Therefore, God has a living connection with evildoers. Without the gifts of life and existence, they could not do anyone any harm. There is great mystery in all this, but what we can say from our biblical tradition is that God, who is love, 1 John chapter 4 verse 8, 
created us in his image and likeness. Genesis 1, 26. This is to say that we have a spiritual nature coexisting with our bodies, enabling us to act as rational beings and make free choices. Love cannot exist outside a context of freedom. It cannot be required or demanded. Nor is love on the spiritual level a blind, instinctual drive. It is a decision made in freedom. This freedom must include the possibility of choosing self-will over friendship with God, or it is no freedom at all. God created us free to accept or reject God's love. He knew that most of us would reject him some of the time, and that a few would deny him most of the time. He also knew that the gift of free will would enable men like Hitler to rise to power, and that the Cains of this world would kill the Abels, and that death squads would torture innocent children. Nonetheless, God knew that some human beings would finally, in spirit and truth, choose to love him in return. Why does God allow evil? He must have thought that those who would accept his offer of friendship would make it all worthwhile. Still, even though God allows evil to happen, it does not follow that God approves of it. God loathes moral evil. See Psalm 26, verse 5. Following the biblical story of the fall of Adam and Eve, in Genesis 3, we read of the spread of evil throughout the human race, corrupting our awareness of God's love and our reverence for truth. This was all a natural and logical consequence of our first parents' betrayal of the spiritual enlightenment they had been blessed with. Their own darkened consciousness contaminated their children's, whose darkness was passed along, generation after generation, becoming politically and economically enculturated through the centuries. God did not leave us to ourselves, however. The biblical story is one of God taking the initiative to invite us to live more responsibly and lawfully with one another. When the time was right, God became incarnate as a human being, Jesus of Nazareth, to stand with us in the battle against evil while empowering us with his very spirit to become loving children of God. Jesus' position was always to resist evil without further escalating it. His power was demonstrated through love, not aggressive coercion. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus broke the hold of evil in this world, demonstrating that the power of goodness is stronger than evil. We see, too, that God's power is not negated by evil, for the resurrection of Jesus established a spiritual foundation from which all creation shall eventually be renewed. It is this same power that God shares with us in the gift of the Holy Spirit, to help us love as Christ himself loved. So we see that God is very concerned about human evil, 
and has even suffered, through Jesus, a most unjust process of torture and death from powers of evil. God empathizes with those who suffer because of moral evil, and has done everything possible to help us face the powers of evil without revoking the gift of freedom that enables the precious possibility of friendship with him. During this epoch of salvation history, we live in a world where forces of both good and evil are in conflict, knowing that God is with us through the struggle. This world and this age are but part of the ongoing story of creation. In the end, God's will shall prevail. The resurrection of Christ is our hope and promise that evil shall not have the last word. More on this in a later section. Clause number two, accidents. If it is possible to believe in a good God who nonetheless permits moral evil, and a powerful God who will not use his power to negate human freedom, then the question of God's role in suffering brought about by accidents naturally emerges. One might say, Okay, so God cannot be blamed for a ruthless dictator's rise to power, nor for the evil of social injustice. Why, then, does God not warn us about accidents? God could surely alert us to tires that were about to blow out, or a bridge that was about to collapse. This would not violate our freedom. We could still choose to take a risk and travel on the tire or bridge, or to do something else. So why, if God is good, are we not warned about accidents to spare us this type of suffering? One common response to these questions is to consider all accidental occurrences to be part of God's plan. We often hear people saying this after an accident of some kind. Even the statement, God works in mysterious ways, presumes that God has some kind of role in engineering the accident. In this view, the thousands of people killed in plane crashes through the years were called by God to die in that manner. Perhaps we might say, it was their turn to go, or something like that to try to make sense of it. Those who ran late and missed those fatal flights were somehow saved by an act of divine intervention as it wasn't their turn to go. This view represents a misunderstanding of God's power, providence, and sovereignty, however. Accidents happen, and God has nothing to do with it. Those who maintain that God somehow has a role in bringing about accidents as a means of selecting those whose time on earth is up fail to make a distinction between primary and secondary causality. Primary causality is the theological affirmation of a God who creates things that can act according to their own nature. Secondary causality is the recognition of the actions of creatures to one another. This is to say that God makes creation, primary causality, but is not responsible for the actions taken by the creatures, secondary causality, including the failures of even things like tires and airplanes. 
Tires and airplanes were made by people, and so their failures, even though unintended, are to be laid at the feet of humans, not God. Build a better tire, and there will be fewer blowouts. Make a better airplane, and there will be fewer crashes. And both have, in fact, improved through the years. Can God prevent accidents? Yes, of course. God can do anything. But this would require that God somehow forewarn us so that we could avoid them. It may well be that God sometimes does alert us of a problem by nudging us internally away from a certain destructive course of action. Many people have given testimony of this kind of experience, usually with the clarity of 2020 hindsight. For example, I recall a situation years ago when I was about to take a trip and I felt strongly that I should check the lugs on the wheels of my car before doing so. As it turned out, they were very loose, as I hadn't completely tightened them after rotating my tires a few days before. It's possible that this awareness had been percolating in my unconscious and finally caught my attention, but it might also be that the Holy Spirit had something to do with bringing it to my awareness. Another example. Around 350 people changed or canceled their flight plans for the planes that were hijacked on September 11, 2001 in the United States. This is an extremely high number compared to similar days on those flights. Coincidence? Warning from God? Impossible to say in most cases, though some have stated that they received an inner warning or sense of danger. It seems, however, that God usually allows us to experience the natural and logical consequences of our lives on earth so that we might become more responsible as a people. If God warned us every time a tire was ready to blow out, we would not have had the initiative to build a better tire. We would probably be lax in our efforts to address social problems if God directly intervened by forewarning us of the approach of a madman with a gun, ready to shoot whoever was in their sight. If God stepped in to prevent these kinds of occurrences, it would probably undermine our incentive to correct those kinds of problems. The reality of accidental suffering and death should be a sobering reminder to us that we never really know when we will die. Because an accident can take us away from this life before we are ready to go, we must live in such a manner that we are always ready to stand before God to give an account of our lives. Suffering caused by accidents also calls us to be compassionate to those who have suffered such misfortunes. One of the ugliest and most insidious myths prevalent today is that we all get what we deserve, including accidents. This is a pagan view, unworthy of Christians. There is that fascinating passage in Luke 13, 1-5, where Jesus refers to 18 people who were killed by a falling tower in Siloam. Do you think they were more guilty than anyone else who live in Jerusalem? He asked the crowd rhetorically. Certainly not, 
he exclaimed in response. Sometimes one is simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. The most appropriate response to suffering caused by accidents is to do what we can to reduce them while providing compassionate support to those who, through no fault of their own, fall victim to this type of suffering in our imperfect world. The last thing we should do is to blame God for the accident and the ensuing suffering. Cause number three, natural evil. The term natural evil has been used to indicate suffering brought about through natural processes. Some writers have even considered sickness and death to be of this type, but we will discuss those types of suffering separately. What we are most concerned with here are largely tragedies related to weather and geological processes. Of course it is difficult to completely subtract human influence from even this type of suffering. For example, much has been written during the past few years concerning climate change, how emissions of greenhouse gases, carbon monoxide and methane, from industry, automobiles and cattle has contributed to broad changes in weather patterns. Although it is difficult to prove the degree to which climate change is related to extreme weather patterns, climatologists insist there is a connection. The prediction is that we will see more weather extremes in the decades to come, one consequence being more human suffering from such natural causes. Human agency is also complicated in other kinds of natural disasters. The dust storms in the Great Plains of the United States during the 1930s were caused, in part, by irresponsible land cultivation methods that left the topsoil unprotected from the prairie wind. Humans depleting the rainforests also influences weather patterns and leads to more flooding. The examples could go on. Even in a world where humans lived in perfect harmony with nature, we would sometimes suffer from an earthquake, volcano, hurricane, and so forth. These so-called acts of God have been happening for a very long time, long before humans came onto the scene. They are part of the way the Earth's natural geological and climatological processes unfold. The problem for us is that we are often in the wrong place at the wrong time, unprepared or unable to cope with these situations. In Kansas, where I now live, we have numerous tornadoes every year. Some of these can be very powerful, destroying virtually everything in their path. They are generally less than a half mile wide, however, and it often happens that a house on one side of the road will be destroyed while one on the other side will be untouched. The path of a tornado is often erratic, prompting some to speculate that they express some kind of divine purpose, destroying this home and that barn for reasons known to God, but sparing others just a few feet away, or seemingly in the direct path, because of divine mercy. As tempting as it is to consider tornadoes and other natural forces to be agents of divine justice, I'm sure this position is not theologically defensible. As always, good people suffer from these forces, 
and bad people escape unharmed. There is no moral intent expressed in natural forces. As was the case with accidental phenomena, we need to make a distinction between primary and secondary causality. Climate and geology operate in the realm of secondary causality. Thanks to scientific progress, we are now able to avoid some of the causes of natural suffering better than in the past. When a hurricane destroyed Galveston, Texas in 1900, no one knew it was coming in advance, and so there was no evacuation of the island. Thousands died. Now we can track hurricanes from their early formation and provide ample warning time to encourage evacuation. This will not diminish the damage done to property in its path. Those who wish to avoid this risk can consider living elsewhere. Likewise for those who live near geological fault lines. Early warning systems for earthquakes don't give much advance notice, but they can help one to at least get out of a building before serious damage is done. Also, knowing where earthquakes are likely to occur provides information to consider when planning where to settle. San Francisco, California is a lovely city, and it's easy to understand why anyone would want to live there. But no geologist would be surprised if a major earthquake caused extensive damage to the city at any time. Science can also help to predict situations where tsunamis will arise, as well as give warnings about flash flooding, severe thunderstorms, and volcanic eruptions. The more we learn, the better we can adjust our lives to natural processes. I have placed birth defects in this section because they can seemingly turn up randomly and without warning. As with other natural causes of suffering, however, they are not completely disconnected from human actions. For example, a woman who drinks alcohol and or uses drugs during her pregnancy can harm her developing fetus, sometimes severely. But a wide range of handicaps can arise in the children of healthy women and marriages. With the better knowledge of the genetic heritage of both parents, it might be possible to predict some of these possibilities, but not necessarily prevent them. Genetic testing of fetuses is also possible, raising the ethical dilemma of how to deal with those who will be born with handicaps, especially severe ones. Church teaching on this issue gives priority to the right of the unborn to life, and that is helpful in sorting out the ethical issues at stake. But bringing a handicapped fetus to term and caring for him or her will surely present extraordinary challenges for the parents. I think God's attitude towards suffering from natural causes is similar to God's attitude about accidents. First and foremost, encouraging compassionate assistance to those who are victims of such tragedies. During the flooding of New Orleans, following Hurricane Katrina in 2005, I heard people say things like, well, if you live in a city below sea level, you're asking for it. Not exactly compassion. God also prompts us to learn more about the earth and its natural systems that we might live more safely 
and in harmony with these mighty forces. Better levees have been built around New Orleans, for example, and more care is being given to inspecting the pumps that were supposed to remove floodwaters around Katrina's time. Most were not operative. Couples who know they are at risk for bearing children with serious handicaps can better decide if they want to take this risk or to find other ways to be generous with their lives, like adoption, for example. God gave us intellects that we might become more responsible for how we live our lives, and the Spirit of God has been given to guide us in our studies and discernments. On a purely fantasy level, I can imagine that God would be delighted if we dropped the phrase, Acts of God, in reference to tragedies brought on by nature. The term gives the wrong impression, ascribing blame to God and thus discouraging people from turning to God when they need Him most. God is always with us, loving us in all of the circumstances of our lives. How about let's use acts of nature as a substitute? Causes 4 and 5, Sickness and the Growth Process All life forms undergo a growth process, struggle to find adequate food, experience illnesses, and finally die. It is no different with humans. Between the time the egg is fertilized in the mother's womb, through birth, toddlerhood, adolescence, adulthood, and finally old age and death, we are challenged and stretched to let go of what has been to realize more of our potential. The growth process need not be too painful if one is healthy and supported by a loving family, but that is not always the case. Still, there's no getting around the fact that life is often difficult, stressful, and wearisome. In Psalm 90, verse 10, we read, Our days may come to seventy years, or eighty, if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass, and we fly away. As with the other causes of suffering, things can be made better or worse depending on the kinds of choices we have made in our lives, and those we continue to make once the difficult times arise. The research is very clear, for example, that diet, sleep, exercise, and relationships are strongly correlated with health. No doctor is surprised when an obese person develops diabetes or an alcoholic has liver disease. Children who grow up in homes where the parents frequently quarrel will often develop low self-esteem, which is a painful psychological consequence they will struggle with for years in many cases. Obviously, we cannot blame God for illnesses brought about through our own poor lifestyle decisions. Even in the best of circumstances, however, sickness and death can intrude unexpectedly. We're all aware of someone, a health nut we might have called him or her, who is careful about diet, sleep, exercise, and managing stress, but suffered a stroke or a heart attack at an early age. In one case I am familiar with, the man, aged 42, had had a physical exam with excellent numbers to boast of. He dropped dead during a jog the very next week, 
leaving his wife with three young children behind. Statistics are in favor of those who make good self-care decisions, but there are no guarantees. Death can come at any moment. I suppose most people would have little quarrel with God if they knew they could count on a long life with few illnesses and a rather quick dying process, surrounded by family and friends, with joyful anticipation of the heavenly world to come. After all, everything that lives eventually has to die, and so one has no right to feel exempt from that fact. But the later the better, and with as little suffering as possible, most of us would say. Indeed, some people are granted such a gift, but of course they do not know that it will happen this way and most likely have experienced times of stress, thinking about their eventual death. What needs to be noted in all this is that, from a biblical perspective, God did not will that humans should know suffering and death as we now experience it. With the creation of the first humans, God breathed into them an immortal spirit that transformed even their bodies with the fullness and glory that was resistant to illness and death. We do not know how that would have worked, of course, as this metaphysical situation was lost with the fall in Eden. Even though those early chapters in Genesis are mythological in construct, they do describe a change in the status of human nature and its capacity for suffering. Genesis 3, 16-19 describes the curses humans were to experience in our new fallen state. Mental anguish, struggle, loss of harmony, contentious relationships, to name a few. Then God gave them animal skins to clothe them for life outside of Eden, signifying that we are now like the other animals, who will experience disease and death. There is also a new capacity for knowing good and evil, which is to say, a judgmentalism that we can apply to any situation. God did not will that we experience this fruit of the tree of knowledge, which is the source of so much of our misery. Human judgmentalism must be ranked among the chief sources of human suffering and misery. It is bad enough that the shoe of life pinches tightly at times but we make things worse by judging that this is a bad thing and something to load, maybe even blame someone else, including God, about. Making mistakes, for example, is inevitable, but judging oneself to be a bad person and a failure for doing so is quite another. Animals become frightened when they perceive a threat, but unlike a cat who calms down when the dog is finally out of sight, we continue to frighten ourselves by fantasizing other threatening situations. We create inner disharmony through our mental mismanagement, compounding the pains we experience from illnesses and other difficulties. Granted, these are but more examples of suffering brought on by poor choices, but what we are naming here is a kind of spiritual disease that biases to make such choices in the first place. We are our own worst enemy, and that is perhaps the worst suffering of all, 
for it disposes us to be hopeless and despondent. Writing in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Again, that's Romans 7, verses 15 through 20. God knows all about our misery, of course, and has done something about it, as we shall soon see. What needs to be affirmed here is that God wills that we be compassionately responsive to the pains and struggles that we all undergo through the growth process, sickness, and death. We see Jesus doing so on many occasions in the Gospels, and he calls us to do the same. Chapter 2, The Critique of Atheism The fact of suffering and death is one of atheism's strongest criticisms of belief in a loving God. What follows is a quote from Dr. Bart Ehrman, a biblical scholar who is also an atheist, in large part because he found the biblical response to the problem of suffering to be inadequate. He quotes, We live in a world in which a child dies every five seconds of starvation. Every five seconds. Every minute there are 25 people who die because they do not have clean water to drink. Every hour 700 people die of malaria. Where is God in all this? We live in a world in which earthquakes in the Himalayas kill 50,000 people and leave 3 million without shelter in the face of oncoming winter. We live in a world where hurricane destroys New Orleans, where a tsunami kills 300,000 people in one fell swoop, where millions of children are born with horrible birth defects. And where is God? To say that he eventually will make right all that is wrong seems, to me now, to be pure wishful thinking. End of the quote. As we've seen in our reflections on the different causes of suffering, Christianity does indeed have a response to Professor Ehrman's objections. God's love and omnipotence are not in conflict, especially if we recognize that God grants a measure of freedom to humans, and indeed all of creation, in its operations. Without such freedom, the universe would simply be like a machine, with creatures going about and doing things according to causes they could not resist or change in any manner. Yet, the fact that humans are capable of changing their attitudes and behavior is proof enough that our lives and actions are not predetermined. Freedom of mind and action is inscribed in the heart of all humans, 
and to a lesser degree in other creatures as well. Such freedom implies the possibility of doing harm even in the face of the experience of negative consequences. Some atheists will grant the role of free will in human suffering, but complain about God creating a kind of universe where natural evil, birth defects, growth pains, sickness, and death are possible. Change and even violence are found throughout the universe, from birth and the death of stars to the cataclysmic changes that planets undergo through volcanoes, bombardment by meteors, and so forth. Life on Earth has come forth in such a context. Animals eat plants and other animals. Species arise and eventually go extinct. Such is the way of the universe. The atheist might want nothing to do with a God who creates a universe where suffering and evil are possible, but it's not as though they have a choice about which one they get to live in. Neither is it obvious that they could have done a better job. Of course, it's possible that God could have designed a universe where free creatures would be compelled to do only good. And in fact, such a place actually does exist. According to Christian theology, it's called heaven, a state of existence where the goodness and beauty of God are perceived so fully that its inhabitants are irresistibly drawn to goodness and love. Another way of considering the atheist complaint, then, would be to inquire why God didn't create only heaven and skip the step of this mortal life with its struggles and pain. There could be no arguing about the existence of God if that were the case, nor of God's goodness and power for that matter. God could have done things that way, but God did not, so there must be a reason for his plan. What we know about God's ultimate plan and God's reason for working it out in the context of this physical universe is extremely limited, however. As the Apostle Paul noted, now we see through a, a glass darkly. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 And the great prophet Isaiah stated, Who can know the mind of the Lord or teach him anything? And, God speaking through the prophet, says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, verse 9. God has his reasons for having created a universe where creatures could experience suffering and evil. The Bible is generally silent on this matter, as it does not occur to its authors to question why God created this kind of universe and not another. What is unequivocally affirmed, however, is that this universe is good, indeed very good. It is more than adequate for accommodating life. Again, a quote from Isaiah. For the Lord is God, and he created the heavens and earth and put everything in place. He made the world to be lived in, not a place of empty chaos. Isaiah 45, verse 18. One thing we can all say, however, is that the universe is not lacking in beauty and grandeur. 
Atheists are often very much in touch with this, but they do not recognize a transcendent source behind and within it all. For the religious person, creation is iconic or revelatory of a greater goodness, beauty, and intelligence. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are not with excuse. Romans 1, verse 20. Creation itself stands as a witness to the existence of God, for it cannot account for its own origin and existence. Atheists, then, are inescapably shackled to a materialistic perspective that even the most noble of their humanists cannot overcome. Their hope to leave the earth a better place for the next generation is laudable, but does not address the deepest aspirations of the human soul and its yearning for complete love, knowledge, and meaning. For them, death is believed to be the end including the extinguishing of the light of individual consciousness. Perhaps they feel some degree of satisfaction in their protest against a God whom they believe to be unjust and mean-spirited, but such self-righteousness is small compensation for the harsh reality of an eventual death and annihilation. Nevertheless, the number of atheists is growing, in no small part because many of them are ignorant of the hope Christianity holds out in the face of evil and suffering. Chapter 3 Christian Spirituality Christians share with atheists a sense of responsibility for the social and ecological future of the planet. We recognize the work for good that they are often doing, and we stand with them in many ventures. As the Apostle Paul wrote long ago, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 there are many such excellent and praiseworthy writings and initiatives carried forward by atheists. With regard to scientific research, in particular, it makes little difference whether the scientist is an atheist or a religious person. Science proceeds by following a method of inquiry that helps to clarify facts, and what is most important is fidelity to this method. How to act upon and understand the meaning of scientific data necessitates consideration of ethical and sometimes even theological principles, however, and it is here that one often finds disagreements. We can collaborate on mapping the human gene code, for example, but what to do with this information is another question. Other complicated areas include embryonic stem cell research, birth control methods, and assisted suicide. Should we proactively and painlessly terminate should we proactively and painlessly 
terminate the life of a person suffering from a terminal illness, for example? Is it ethical to perform late-term abortions when the mother's life is not at risk? Science cannot resolve these questions, as they are ethical considerations. Christianity has no quarrel with advances in technology that help to relieve suffering and extend life. Although our symbol is the cross, we do not believe that suffering in itself is a good thing. As noted in a section above, the kind of misery and strife we experience at this time in history was not God's hope for us, and so it is a good thing to do whatever we can through scientific means, whether they be medical, pharmaceutical, psychological, and so forth, or otherwise to work to alleviate suffering and to reverse the conditions that bring it about. Chief among these conditions is the misuse of human freedom, a topic about which Christian spirituality has much to offer. The Response of Faith and Love The misuse of human freedom is the cause of enormous misery and destruction, relational, social, political, economic, environmental, and so on. If we could eliminate this cause, we would still have natural evil, accidents, growth pains, and sicknesses to contend with, but we could surely deal with each of these problems much more effectively. It's obvious that making rational and loving choices would make things better in any circumstance, so one wonders why would we ever choose to do otherwise? The answer is because our choosing is deeply influenced by three negative factors. Ignorance, selfishness, and social bias. These three are often entwined to twist our consciousness, thus distorting our perceptions, judgments, and decision-making. All of the world's religions, and many atheists as well, are aware of these destructive influences, but countering them is another matter. In Christianity, the problem of ignorance is addressed in a variety of ways. Christians support educational endeavors such as the pursuit of the arts, science, math, and so forth. The greater problem of moral ignorance is also addressed in several ways. Biblical revelation confronts us with the Ten Commandments, for example, and moral theologians today reflect on the application of ethical principles in a wide range of situations. But it is the example of Jesus that sets forth the clearest expression of what it means to live a good and moral life. His teachings on love and his example of living a life of love inspire us to do likewise. Because Christians believe that Jesus is God incarnate, we find in him the focal point to draw the mind and will in the direction of goodness. The problem of selfish bias is more difficult to overcome. As the Apostle Paul noted, the Jews had the moral law, but their history betrays and inability to live up to its requirements. The reason for this has less to do with a disregard for the law 
than with a deep woundedness that leaves the human psyche polluted with fear, shame, and resentment. These negative emotions exert considerable influence on the will and reason, moving us to seek our own good first without regard for the needs of others. Christianity responds to this inner bias by calling us to conversion, to renounce our selfish ways, and to open ourselves to the love of God through faith. Faith also enables us to open to the power of the Holy Spirit, a deeper will and energy at work within us, who heals the deep recesses of the soul and gives us in power to love God and one another. Of course, it's painfully obvious that many who call themselves Christians seem to have missed out on this inner healing and empowerment. But what should also be obvious is that this kind of religious transformation is not an option offered by atheism, which in fact denies its very possibility. Despite the example of countless saints and mystics, in our day and through the ages. Finally, the influence of social bias, such as racism, sexism, excessive nationalism, and so forth, is offset by Christian community, where we find support and encouragement for growing in faith and living by moral values. Through the preaching, teaching, fellowship, and sacraments, we are nurtured in our growth in Christ. We are also sent forth to live a life of love in our families, workplace, and in the larger culture. We see then that Christianity does offer a positive response to the problem of individual and social bias, and the case could easily be made that the world today is a better place because of the influence of Christians through the ages. The record is tainted by scandals, inquisitions, and so forth, but it would be wrong to consider these to be characteristic and definitive. Wherever such wrongdoing has occurred, it has eventually been condemned by Christian teaching itself. Far more characteristic has been transformed individuals and relationships with schools, hospitals, and religious communities responding to a wide variety of needs. Much remains to be done, of course, but the spiritual means to do so has already been richly provided for by God through Christ and His Church. The Possibility of Redemptive Suffering Even with the responses of education, faith, spirituality and community just described, everyone will suffer at some time. It is during such times that the question of a good and loving God becomes most focused and urgent. Sometimes people become angry with God, holding God responsible for their situation, or at least wondering why God doesn't rescue them from it somehow. In the worst of cases, they reject God completely including spiritual disciplines and Christian community. This can lead to the experience of non-redemptive suffering. All pain moves us to focus on self, our problems, and possible solutions. 
When we fully give in to this movement, we can shut others, including God, out of our lives and become more withdrawn, isolated, and hopeless. This non-redemptive suffering makes a difficult situation worse by straining relationships and leaving us with a sense of meaninglessness. The life circumstance from which we suffer is bad enough, but we compound it because of our negative, judgmental attitude, perhaps going so far as to become bitter and closed off to life. Alcohol and drugs might provide temporary relief, but we have little hope for experiencing happiness. This is a tragic mistake, for Christianity holds out a very different way of responding to a painful situation. The message and example of Christ is that God is with us in every circumstance of life. That's why the response of faith that we've just discussed is so important. It helps us to be open to God and to extend God's compassion to others. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and overburdened, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11, verse 28. He is the promised Emmanuel, which means God with us, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. He is with us when we suffer, offering his love, friendship, guidance, and hope. If our suffering is a consequence of poor or selfish choices, he holds out his forgiveness, inviting us to make amends if necessary, and move on. Even from the cross, where he was being mocked by those who had tortured him unjustly, he persisted in love and forgiveness. Jesus reveals that nothing can separate us from God's love, not trouble or calamity, persecution, hunger, poverty, death, demons, powers, and principalities. See Romans 8, verses 31 to 39 for a long list. <clears throat> the promise of redemptive suffering is that we can continue to grow in our relationship with God, self, and others, even during times of pain. In the book, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl noted that even in the experience of a Nazi concentration camp, it was still possible for individuals to choose their attitude in this horrible situation. Christ did the same during his passion, and he can strengthen us as well through his Spirit dwelling within us. There is no guarantee that the cause of our suffering will be resolved. One might still have the cancer, or the destruction left by a tornado, for example. The main point is that one can go through this difficult time, open to God and loving, or one can withdraw from life in bitterness. The choice is ours. At the heart of the Christian spiritual life is a dynamic called the Paschal Mystery. The Paschal Mystery refers to Christ dying and rising from the dead. We experience this pattern in our own lives. Sometimes things fall apart, but if we stay close to God and persevere in loving relationships, 
we come to experience transformation. Looking back on such an experience, we can see how close God was to us and how much we learned and grew through it all. As the Apostle Paul observes, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Paschal Mystery is another answer to the question, where is God during times of suffering? God is with us, loving and supporting us, deepening our capacity for compassion and insight. We are grown by God during times of suffering just as surely as we are when things are going well, maybe more so. While suffering is not a good thing in and of itself, God can bring forth good from suffering and even make use of it to teach us lessons we would not learn otherwise. The response of hope for the future. Religion is the opiate of the people is a summary of Karl Marx's critique of the role of religion in society. He saw that the promise of a heavenly future held out by religions could often serve to distract people from taking responsibility for improving life in this world. Even worse, teachings about heaven in combination with an unhealthy emphasis on the nobility of the cross and suffering played into the hands of the wealthy who used it to oppress the working class. Hence, for Marx and the communists who made use of his teachings, there could be no place for religion in their socialistic society. Marx had a point, of course. Sometimes religious teachings have been used to manipulate people. As always, however, these distortions have been confronted by Christian teachings themselves, with the errors pointed out and exaggerated emphases corrected. The solution to the problem Marx pointed out was not to get rid of religion, as the communists did, but to reform and renew it, as has been done many times through the centuries. Religious traditions participate in the Paschal Mystery in a manner similar to that of individuals, with structures and emphases that worked in one age eventually falling apart and then rising again in another form with different emphases. Church history tells the story of these dyings and risings, which continue to this day. The truth is that we need a little of the opium that Marx was protesting against. A better name for this would be the virtue of hope, which looks to a better future for individuals and the world. After all, if this life is all there is, then the future ends with death and its annihilation of everything we know ourselves to be, body, psyche, and spirit. What kind of future is that? And yet there's no denying the fact of death. So what would be our basis for hoping in a future beyond? Some religions, such as Hinduism and New Age, respond by proposing that the human spirit survives death, but is embodied again 
to go through another life as a human or perhaps even as another kind of animal or even a creature on another planet. This process continues through many lifetimes until one finally attains complete oneness with the divine in the universe. Like the drop of rain that falls into the ocean to become one with it, so does the individual soul eventually lose itself in the great ocean of existence. This view tends to encourage people to try to live a good life to attain a better rebirth, but it can also lead to a certain fatalism concerning the future. The Christian basis for hope in a future beyond is based on the resurrection of Jesus. The risen Christ is the individual, Jesus of Nazareth, transformed in body and soul to fully participate in the life of God. This revelation is held out as a promise to those who are in Christ, that we too will be resurrected as Jesus was, to experience eternal life with God. Christ was raised from the dead, Paul says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. The encounters with the risen Christ reported in the Gospels give us a glimpse of our own glorious future. The resurrection has implications beyond that of the destiny of individuals. A spiritual transformation of society and the world are promised as well, fully overcoming the various causes of suffering. Christians believe that Christ will come again in glory, ushering in a new age in which the reign of God will exist on earth as in heaven. In this new world, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Revelations 21 verse 4 The gospel of Christ holds out a glorious future to hope in, for our individual destiny and for that of the world. Because of this hope, we can hold our heads high and more cheerfully endure the inescapable sufferings of this life. This hope is pie in the sky to some degree, but that's not a bad thing, especially if we can taste the pie in this life. That's why God left us the Holy Spirit, God's enduring presence with us through this time of history as we wait for the promised fulfillment to come. Through faith, prayer, and spiritual disciplines, we can experience a glimpse of what this new life will be like. As the Apostle Peter writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 the utopian future hoped for by the Marxists and other atheists pales in comparison with this hope for resurrection. In summary, we live in a time of biblical history between the fall of our first parents from fullness of relationship with God and the triumphant second coming of Christ. We are both fallen and redeemed, deeply wounded by shame, fear, and selfishness, 
but also gifted with the love God made available to us through Jesus Christ. We continue to experience suffering brought on by our own bad choices, also from accidents, natural acts, sickness, and growing pains. Often it does not seem to make sense that God allows us to experience such misery, but biblical and church teaching note that this was never God's plan for the human race. Nevertheless, God is still with us, and nothing can separate us from the love of God poured out in Jesus Christ. If we claim God's love through faith, we can experience God's presence through times of suffering, and even continue to grow in character. Suffering need not deprive us of meaning or hope. There will come a time when God's reign will be fully established on earth, and suffering will be no more. But in the meantime, we are all vulnerable, and we all shall one day die. As a people of God, we are called to extend the compassion and consolation of God to one another as we journey through life. I hope you have enjoyed this audiobook. If you would like to purchase the paperback, go to lulu.com or shalomplace.com, where you can also find free electronic versions in PDF and EPUB format.